And now look ahead to October term 2018. The term so far doesn't have any blockbusters to match the top half dozen cases from last term, but there still should be a little something for everyone. Here are some of the issues. Judicial deference to administrative agencies regarding the Endangered Species Act. The delegation of legislative authority to the executive. The procedural hoops property owners must jump through to vindicate their rights. State sovereign immunity. The constitutionality of successive prosecutions by state and federal governments and the incorporation of the excessive fines clause against the states. So I guess if you're a, if you're a federal courts law professor, you're probably especially uh, excited about this term. So again, something for every legal nerd, really. Uh, at worst, Erin Murphy concludes in her looking ahead essay in the Supreme Court Review volume, we will still learn whether you can use your hovercraft in Alaska, what constrains the state from trying to seize your Land Rover, and where to turn if the state mandates public access to your private cemetery. Colorful stuff. So to discuss the term, we have, in addition to Aaron, Tom Goldstein, and Mark Sherman. I'll introduce them each briefly, but their bios are in your materials. Erin Murphy is a partner in the Washington office of Kirkland & Ellis. She's argued four cases in the Supreme Court, including successfully arguing McCutcheon versus FEC, for which she was named American Lawyers Litigator of the Week, and uh, successfully arguing on behalf of the U.S. House of Representatives in Texas versus United States. Erin has also been recognized by the National Law Journal as one of the nation's outstanding women lawyers and a rising star. Uh, next up will be Tom Goldstein, best known as one of the nation's most experienced Supreme Court practitioners and the founder of SCOTUS Blog, without which I could not do my job. My interns would be, I, I would need more interns, really. Um, he has served as counsel to one of the parties in roughly 10% of all the court's merits cases in the last 15 years, personally arguing 41. Only three lawyers in the court's modern history have argued more cases in private practice. Perhaps more than anything else, Tom represents the complete spectrum of litigants before the court. His work is not associated with any perspective or ideology. He's a true gun for hire. Uh, <laughs> finally, Mark Sherman has covered the Supreme Court for the Associated Press since 2006. He previously covered the Justice Department, healthcare, and national politics in more than 25 years as a reporter in Washington and Atlanta. Earlier in his professional life, Mark was a foreign service officer and served as a copy boy at the New York Times. Uh, he is a native of Brooklyn, New York, a graduate of Princeton University, go Tigers, and a resident of uh, Washington, D.C., where he lives just a few blocks from the court, so has one of the shortest commutes probably of anyone in the room. Uh, let's begin. Aaron, one up here. So, uh, you know, as, as Ilya said, maybe we don't have, you know, quite the, the blockbuster term at the moment uh, next, this, this coming year as we had last year, but it's still early and we only have about half the cases and I think there's some pretty good odds that we'll have at least one or two big ones uh, show up on the docket before the year is out. But for now, I'm, I'll talk about a couple of the cases that the court is going to hear for sure and one case that 
I think odds are extremely high the court will end up hearing uh, that, that I think will all be pretty interesting ones, at least for kind of the legal nerdy-minded folks in the room. Uh, one of the first case, the first case we'll talk about is, is a case that I am super excited about, which is a case called Gundy versus United States involving the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, I, I'm particularly excited about this case because I, I see it as a parallel to a case I was involved in a few years ago, the NFIB case. Now, many of you you may think of NFIB as you know, the court's kind of seminal recent statement about the Commerce Clause, but for me, it will always be the, the, the critical case about the spending power, because of course what we all really cared about there was that it was the first case uh, since 1937 in which the court concluded that something Congress did actually exceeded its power under the spending clause, which was a really important conclusion by the court for anybody who is a big believer in separation of powers principles and worried about federal overreach, since the spending power is one of the main ways that, that Congress does a lot of things that seem a little bit outside the conception of a limited federal government. Well, I think we have a bit of a potential sequel this year in Gundy, which could become the first case since 1935 in which the court concludes that something violates the non-delegation doctrine, a doctrine that really hasn't been enforced and has barely been invoked at all since the New Deal era. Gundy is a, a, a case that arises in, in a little bit of an unusual posture for dealing with a, a non-delegation clause claim. Uh, not really unusual if you follow these areas, but, but maybe not what you'd think of as where kind of a, a, a kind of strong, you know, libertarian-oriented separation of powers doctrine like this one would arise, which is the Sexual Offenders Notice Registration and Notice Act, a law that was passed a while back that basically requires all sex offenders to comply with registration requirements. And the statute has actually given rise to all sorts of constitutional questions, but here it's being taken up to consider a non-delegation doctrine question. And if you're not super up on the non-delegation doctrine, you shouldn't feel bad because the court basically never even hears non-delegation cases, let alone, as I said, finding anything unconstitutional under the doctrine. But uh, as, as, as Justice Gorsuch had occasion to explain in an opinion back when he was Judge Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit, it's a really important doctrine in, in the views of many uh, for purposes of separation of powers. It's, I mean, the basic thrust of the non-delegation doctrine is that Congress is the branch of government that is supposed to be making laws and the executive is supposed to be enforcing them. And that makes it constitutionally problematic when Congress decides to delegate to the executive its power to make laws. And the basic concept behind the non-delegation doctrine is that there is a point at which Congress can go too far and essentially abdicate its lawmaking role and hand it over to the executive. It is a doctrine that you know, has, has a lot of promise as an important doctrine in separation of powers and protecting individual liberty from federal overreach, but it's a doctrine that has been so rarely invoked by the Supreme Court that it really isn't getting enforced by lower courts either. 
And we see that in the context of, of this case, the, the statutory provision that the court is going to consider in this case is one that I think almost every circuit in the country has concluded does not violate the non-delegation clause. Yet we nonetheless have the Supreme Court deciding to take up this splitless question on uh, whether a statutory provision violates a, non, a doctrine that the court hasn't enforced for almost a century. I think this is a, a case where it's an example of a kind of if, 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 nothing, if, if, if this doesn't violate it, then what does? Uh, because what we have here is a provision of a statute that basically what the question that Congress didn't answer in SORNA is whether these new registration requirements should apply retroactively to people that committed a sex offense before the SORNA law was put into place. Instead, what Congress did was put a provision in the statute that said the attorney general shall decide whether to apply this provision retroactively to people that committed a sex offense before the statute went into effect. And that's basically all Congress said. It didn't say anything about how the attorney general should go about deciding whether to apply it retroactively, what principles should be considered, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea to apply it retroactively. It just says, you know, in, in, to paraphrase the words of it, essentially the attorney general shall, shall figure this out for us. Uh, and, and if something is going to violate the non-delegation doctrine, one would think it's a statute that basically takes a fundamental question about whether something is a federal crime and says, we'll let the attorney general figure out what the law is and, and tell everybody and, and make that decision for us. So you know, given the dynamics of this being a, an issue on which the lower courts were not divided at all, this being an issue uh, on which basically courts have not found really any provision, let alone this one, to violate the non-delegation doctrine uh, for quite some time. All of this strongly suggests to me that the court took this case because at least some of the justices have a real interest in looking at this doctrine and reminding folks that they do think it is in fact a constraint on federal power and, and on the lawmaking power of Congress. So I think this case is, you know, I don't even know if it qualifies as sleeper because it, it may be that many people think it's one of the more interesting cases of this term, but certainly, you know, to me, it is a case that it could be resolved really narrowly, but it could be a really interesting case to see the, the views of some of the, the justices and particularly some of the new justices on separation of powers and how they view some of these issues interacting with uh, with fundamental questions of individual liberty. So I'm really excited about Gandhi, and another case uh, that I'm really excited about is a case called Nick v. Township of Clark, which is a very different area of the law, the takings clause. Nick is a case in which the court has granted cert for the express purpose of deciding whether to overrule one of its existing precedents, a case called Williamson County. There's a couple cases the court has taken this term actually to consider whether to overrule existing precedent, which is itself interesting. You know, I mean, the court typically has a few of those each year, but, but it is interesting, I think, to, to see on their docket uh, multiple cases where that's really the sole reason they've, they've granted cert is, is to consider whether to overrule something. It's always an interesting thing when the court does that, both because 
they might overrule something, and because you learn a lot about the, the justices' views on stare decisis in any case that involves whether to overrule something. And as we all know, you know, a stare decisis can be tremendously important in lots of different contexts. Uh, but I also think that the, the Nick case is a really interesting and really important case in the realm of takings clause uh, cases because Nick is really one of the most profoundly impactful cases on how takings claims get litigated. Uh, it, well, but Williamson County is the question that Nick is going to address. What Williamson County said is that to bring a takings claim, you have to basically start in state court. You have to go to state court and say, my property was taken and I would like to be compensated for that taking of my property. And the court basically reasoned that because the takings clause doesn't flatly prohibit taking property for uh, private property for government purposes, but instead prohibits taking it without compensation, that you have to go and demonstrate that you were denied compensation before you can assert a takings claim. So the court said, the the way you do that is by going to state court and exhausting your procedural remedies or whatever substantive remedies you have in state court to try to get compensation for your taking. And the court said that only after you've done that can you bring a takings claim in federal court. Well, this has caused all sorts of complications as a practical matter, and you can see this a bit in the way that the, the Nick case uh, has played out. So the Nick case is, is the case that will lead us to learn about whether there is public access to your private cemetery. Uh, it turns out that in Pennsylvania, and, and in fact, almost every state in the nation, I had no idea of this, but you are actually uh, still allowed to bury your dead in your own backyard. Um, I, I suspect this is a pretty heavily regulated process these days, uh, but it is nonetheless apparently still lawful in most states to basically just have a, a private burial ground on your own private property. Now, uh, Ms. Nick, the, the petitioner in the Nick case, to, to my knowledge, she hasn't buried any dead on her property, but the town got wind of the notion that there may be some sort of ancient burial ground on her 70-acre farm in rural western Pennsylvania. So the town responded in sort of the way that only government could do under these circumstances. It passed an ordinance mandating that all property that is has uh, burial grounds on it must be open to the public during daylight hours for members of the public to come and, and observe the, the cemeteries and basically told Ms. Nick that unless she opened her property to the public, that she would be in violation of this ordinance and could face fines and other uh, restrictions. Ms. Nick tried to challenge this in state court. She went to state court, and the town said, eh, never mind, we don't really want to enforce this against you right now. We don't want to have to deal with this. And the the town, the state court responded by saying, we're not going to allow uh, you to litigate your claim at this point because 
there is not an enforceable ordinance against you right now. The town's not doing anything about it. So come back if and when the town decides that they want to bring an enforcement action against you. So she's still subject to this ordinance, but she can't do anything about it in state court because they won't decide whether she's entitled to any sort of compensation for it. And at that point, she decided to go and try and bring her claim in federal court so that she could challenge the constitutionality of this ordinance saying she has to let the public onto her private property all the time. And the federal court invoking Williamson County said, sorry, we can't litigate your claim either because you haven't exhausted in state court your ability to get compensation. So you can't litigate your claim anywhere. There's nothing you can do about the fact that there's this ordinance sitting out there saying that you will be fined if you don't let the public onto your private property. And this is actually one of the less egregious examples of the weird and problematic implications that Williamson County has had, because what happens in a lot of cases is you go and litigate your takings claim in state court, and the state court says, no, you're not entitled to compensation because this isn't a taking. And then when you try and litigate it in federal court, the federal court says, well, your takings claim is foreclosed as a matter of preclusion by the fact that a state court already rejected it. And so essentially, because of the Williamson County case, you really can't bring most takings claims in federal court at all. Indeed, there's very little law in recent years in the federal courts on core questions under the takings clause, precisely because really only one of the federal courts of appeals ever has takings cases. So this is a really important case even though it's kind of procedural and technical, because it's critical to the ability to be able to actually get into federal court and litigate your claims under the takings clause. And uh, I think this is another instance of uh, the court you know, being unlikely to have taken this case if they weren't pretty concerned about Williamson County. There's been multiple dissents over the past decade or so from justices explaining why they think this decision was wrong, why it has really problematic implications for people trying to bring these claims. And this, like Gundy, is a, an issue that was obviously splitless below because nobody was going to hold that the Supreme Court should overrule its precedent in Williamson County. So this really is, you know, sure looks like the court taking this case because it has views about how to answer the question presented. Uh, so I think it'll be a, a very interesting one. I do think that, you know, the Williamson County case is not super likely to survive, at least on, uh, as to this aspect of the case, but, but we shall find out soon enough. Thank you. So Williamson County rule will be interred. You heard it there first. Oh. Thanks so much. Uh, it is uh, wonderful to be here with you, given that, you know, hour by hour, nothing at all is interesting happening with respect to what will be happening at the Supreme Court. There's no intrigue at all. Uh, and we'll just talk about these relatively dry questions of federal procedure. Uh, I did want to mention with respect to Gunby that it does have not only implications by its own terms in terms of questions of non-delegation and, and that particular statute, but its most immediate implications could well be in the tariffs area. There is a significant federal challenge right now to the president's invocation of his authority to make a national security determination that certain industries are in trouble and therefore need protection by tariff. And that federal statute is written extremely, extremely broadly. It just says basically the president can do whatever he likes. 
And uh, the Supreme Court actually rejected a non-delegation challenge to that statute in the past, but at a time in which the view was that the president's invocation of his tariff authority was subject to the Administrative Procedure Act, which later the Supreme Court held was not true. And so this ruling in the context of SORNA can have big, big implications for other things that are going on with respect to the economy and foreign affairs and the like. Uh, I'm going to talk about two cases also raising uh, interesting questions of constitutional law. The first case is the state of New York versus Paul Manafort, which is masquerading under the name of United States versus Gamble. Uh, it involves the question of whether you can prosecute someone in one, one sovereign can prosecute someone after they've already been prosecuted by another sovereign, also known as if you pardon somebody, can they be prosecuted by the state of New York? Um, <laughs> hence, its actual name, state of New York versus Paul Manafort. Uh, and so it's a, a case that has, you know, in another year might well have been regarded as relatively dry and not of having immediate consequence, but is a huge deal for the dynamic going on between the special prosecutor and the president. Uh, so it has long been the rule uh, in the United States that the double jeopardy protection applies only with respect to the sovereign that brings the first prosecution. So if the federal government prosecutes you for offense X and you're later acquitted or there's problems after the jury is seated, there are a variety of technical requirements to trigger the protections of double jeopardy, they can't go after you again. That's relatively settled. But the Supreme Court said a long time ago that that is only true with respect to the sovereign that brings the prosecution. And therefore, if the federal government prosecutes you for something, uh, a state is free to prosecute you as well, uh, or the reverse. And that is true in addition if it is the case that you get pardoned by the president for the federal offense, because it's settled, of course, that a federal pardon does not apply to state offenses. So uh, that, however, has been a hotly contested uh, doctrine. Uh, it was criticized from the outset, this notion of the dual sovereigns doctrine. Uh, but it nonetheless has been settled and reaffirmed many, many times. And so this is another case, like uh, one that Aaron mentioned, in which the Supreme Court is reconsidering a prior precedent. Uh, it uh, evokes the questioning of Brett Kavanaugh about what you do with precedent upon precedent, which is obviously a reference uh, some barely coded to Roe versus Wade. What happens when the Supreme Court decides something as a matter of constitutional law and then redecides it and redecides it and redecides it? Well, so it has been with the dual sovereigns doctrine. So here we have a case with relatively straightforward facts, and that is the defendant, Mr. Gamble, lost in his gamble in that he was a convicted felon and then was riding around with the gun and the marijuana and the scale, which is regarded as a bad under both federal and state law and common sense. Uh, the, exactly right. Um, the, and he was prosecuted by uh, the state. Uh, and then the federal government came along and said, we're going to prosecute you as well. Uh, he was convicted in state court of being a felon in possession of firearm. And then he was convicted in federal court of being a felon in possession of firearm. And he said, Deja vu, which is not technically the requirement. It is double jeopardy, but no matter. Uh, very, very similar principle. And uh, the federal offense, in, uh, importantly, resulted in three years more jail time for Mr. Gamble. Uh, the lower court said, you know, this seems uh, bad, maybe, but the Supreme Court has told us that this is OK. And so Gamble filed a cert petition saying, I'd like you to reconsider the dual sovereigns doctrine, the Supreme Court agreed to grant cert. Uh, this had been flagged by a couple of justices, both the justice on the left and on the right, 
Uh, and you can see uh, its attractiveness to both uh, more liberal and more conservative uh, members of the court, the left being concerned with overzealous prosecution and unfair treatment of defendants, and the right uh, being concerned with this as an original matter because it is fairly well established that uh, in England at the time of the founding, uh, you could not prosecute someone for an offense that they had already been prosecuted for by another sovereign. Now, the argument on the other side is that that is, had never been true when you have two sovereigns with the same territorial jurisdiction, which was ne would never be the case in England in the late 1700s. Uh, but that is thought to be a distinction without a difference because the rationale of the double jeopardy clause seems to fully apply. And that is one person should not fear the fact that sovereigns will come after them over and over and over and over again until they finally get you. Um, and as I mentioned, there's been a lot of criticism in the literature and the like. And so it will be interesting to see, I think, um, you can fairly regard the handwriting as on the wall for the dual sovereigns doctrine. Uh, the court wouldn't have taken up this case, I think, if unless there was a majority convinced that they would be willing to overturn it. Um, whether it will have enormous immediate consequences is uh, another question. It does have this implication with respect to the ongoing prospects of pardons. Uh, there are a lot of state laws that prohibit these re-prosecutions, I should say, although there is not, there's a federal policy but not a federal statute that prohibits them. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but more, most interesting to me as a kind of uh, big picture question of the court is what does the left do in a case like this? A similar issue arose last term. We had a case involving whether it is that you can be charged sales tax for online purchases when you are not in the same state as the place that you're buying from. We represented the people saying you can be taxed, for which I apologize. Um, and the Supreme Court agreed with us five to four. But the left in that case, which naturally would have been our ally, conservatives being uh, naturally inclined to be more anti-tax, the left being more inclined to allow taxation, including for the purposes of providing governmental services. The left basically wanted nothing to do with our position because the left now is playing defense. It does not want anything overruled as a matter of constitutional law because those things that are overruled tend to start with Roe. And uh, they would prefer that that not happen. Also decisions relating to affirmative action and a bunch of other things. So it will be fascinating to see whether or not Elena Kagan and Steve Breyer uh, and Sonia Sotomayor in particular kind of hold to their guns on the question of constitutional stare decisis and try and erect a very high bar, kind of seeing the handwriting on the wall uh, of where the court is going. But I think that the dual sovereigns doctrine is probably gone. Uh, the second case that I'm going to talk about is a case called Tim's. It is about the excessive fines clause. The Eighth Amendment of the Constitution says that you shouldn't have excessive fines. Uh, it's among the protections uh, about excessive punishments. Uh, but it, like uh, the Bill of Rights generally applies by its terms to the federal government, not to the states. And so this is a case about incorporation. And you would think, you know, we've had the Bill of Rights for a long time. For those of you uh, not steeped in this doctrine, the court has over time, not entirely, but largely said that the due process principle of the 14th Amendment incorporates the rest of the Bill of Rights as against the states. So while Congress shall pass no law restricting the freedom of the press, it turns out that neither shall the state of Maryland and so on and so forth. Now, the Supreme Court has said uh, multiple times in dictum that the Eighth Amendment does apply with respect to the states, uh, but it has never so held. It has never had a fines case in it by its terms, uh, and it's about to. Uh, it's just getting around to constitutional provision by constitutional provision. This uh, case comes from Indiana, 
And so you have here a defendant, Mr. Timms, who was driving around in a Land Rover and uh, while driving around in the Land Rover engaged in two controlled sales to an undercover officer who did not reveal that he was an undercover officer. Uh, and that too is illegal under Indiana law uh, and also federal law, of course. But he was convicted for engaging, uh, convicted under state law for engaging in the drug sales. Uh, he paid about $1,000 in penalties and thought that the case was done. He had, his sentence was a year in home confinement and then five years of probation. He then got a notice from a private law firm that had been hired by the state of Indiana uh, saying, we now are pursuing you on behalf of the state to forfeit your vehicle, the $42,000 Land Rover that you were in at the time that you engaged in these drug sales. Uh, and he said to the trial court, this seems to me excessive, the, massive, the, the maximum fine that you could impose on me uh, for these criminal violations is $10,000. That seems a lot less than $42,000. And the trial court said, that seems right to me. Uh, the Eighth Amendment, the Supreme Court has said over and over, applies against the states. This is a state. That's an excessive fine. The Court of Appeals agreed. The Indiana Supreme Court said we disagree, not over its excessiveness, but over the question of incorporation. It said the Supreme Court has never done this. We are a very modest institution. We will leave it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court accepted this invitation uh, and so is now taking up the case. We are coming to the end of the body of laws. We've kind of run out of constitutional provisions. Uh, the Second Amendment in the McDonald case, those of you all who are familiar with the work of Cato in particular, uh, will remember the Supreme Court said that it, it applies uh, against the states. Uh, and now we're going to get the excessive fines clause. One small doctrinal question is, will the Supreme Court express any interest in the question of whether this is a due process principle or instead a privilege and immunity of citizenship of the United States? So that could, which is a, itself a broader question in American constitutional law, the privileges and immunities clause is kind of been read out of the Constitution, regarded basically as a typo. Um, and there has been an effort by organizations like Cato and others uh, to get, get, get its due in the Constitution. And it'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court has any interest in that. But the, the, um, this is a big deal because forfeiture has become such a big deal. The government has gone a little bit hog wild in seizing things. It's a relatively well-known phenomenon now that troubles a lot of people. And this is an incredible vehicle to take it to the Supreme Court because now you have plaintiffs, law firms, acting on contingent fee agreements going around and seizing things on behalf of the state. And I just think that the conservatives of the Supreme Court might think that's bad um, and uh, maybe worthy of the death penalty the, um, <laughs> or something. Um, but uh, I, I do think that uh, Mr. Mr. Gamble, uh, excuse me, Mr. Timms is likely to win his excessive fines claim. Mm, those are my two cases. I Hello. I'm going to talk uh, very briefly about two kinds of cases, um, death, two death penalty cases that are on the docket currently, neither of which is a particularly large issue, and then a couple of cases involving uh, Title VII prohibitions on uh, sex discrimination and whether that encompasses discrimination against LGBT people, which not yet on the court's docket. And I'm going to do that do those sets of cases because I think they illustrate uh, two areas in which um, groups that supported limits on capital punishment and extending uh, rights to LGBT people are worried, and maybe with very good reason, that the progress that they feel they've been making in the courts 
is coming to a halt, uh, both types of cases. So in the um, death penalty cases, one is from Alabama and one is from Missouri. The Alabama case, which is going to be argued on the second day of the term, and which may now be argued with just eight justices, that remains to be seen. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit in question time. But um, Vernon Madison uh, killed a police officer back in the 1980s, and he's been on death row for about 30, 30 some odd years. And um, he has suffered a series of strokes, and he has a condition called vascular dementia. Both sides agree. And the question is whether, because of this condition, he's unable to recall what he did. And uh, by virtue of that, he should, whether he should be ineligible to be executed. And it's, the, it's a case where uh, his lawyers say it's akin to the court's uh, cases where they've said that people who are incompetent um, can't be executed because if one of the purposes of execution is retribution and the person who's to be executed can't really understand that concept, that it's not uh, appropriate to execute the person. Um, that's the case from Alabama. The state says um, this is yet another of those backdoor attacks on the death penalty um, by uh, groups that can't seem to uh, you know, make it happen through the political process. And that uh, if Madison were to win here, uh, you would find all kinds of attacks, uh, similar attacks being made, in large part by virtue of the fact that uh, death row is in increasingly becoming a geriatric ward and that you're uh, perhaps more likely to die of natural causes or of old age on death row than you are um, from being executed. The other case that the court's going to hear in November is from Missouri, uh, Russell Bucklew, uh, killed someone in uh, the 1990s and tried to kill his uh, estranged girlfriend as well. Um, he has a medical condition uh, that causes very painful uh, blood, uh, tumors filled with blood to form in his throat and on his lips. And his argument is not an attack on a particular method of execution generally, but just as it applies to him. He says that if he were to be executed or if he, there was an, an attempt were made to execute him by means of lethal injection, um, those tumors are likely to uh, rupture. Um, it, we, he would uh, then, um, his mouth and throat would fill with blood. He would choke. The sensation would be uh, horrific and that it could last up to f uh, four minutes. Um, he says that uh, in fact, Missouri has, under its law, authorized an alternate means of execution, uh, the gas chamber, even though um, Missouri hasn't, hasn't ever used it. It is, it is a part of the state law. And he says that one of the things that uh, uh, death row inmates uh, have to do when they attack uh, death penalty, a, a sentence of execution against them, is to provide an alternate means of execution. Um, the court said that uh, recently in the Glossop case, uh, in which was another case in which the conservative majority on the court uh, was kind of angry at what it felt was or other backdoor efforts to uh, stop executions from taking place in this country. And um, his, 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 part of his argument is that, in fact, there is another method, and Missouri is, uh, is welcome to try to execute him that way, uh, that the, uh, the sensation of uh, choking would be much shorter and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't raise the prospect that this would be so painful as to violate the Constitution. Um, both these cases uh, reached the, reach the court first as an uh, application for a stay of execution. In the Alabama case, 
There were three justices, uh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, who said they would let the execution proceed. The Chief Justice didn't say anything, but in the Missouri case, there were four justices, the Chief Justice and those three, um, suggesting, uh, I think, pretty strongly that without Justice Kennedy as the fifth vote, that there are not five votes uh, necessarily for Mr. Bucklew and maybe not for Mr. Madison either. Um, so those cases would be interesting, uh, assuming there is a new justice on the court, because it would be a first indication of his views of applying the death penalty um, and, and as I said at the start, whether there would be any uh, sort of uh, continued forward progress for uh, opponents of capital punishment in this country. The other cases that are not yet on the docket, but for which um, cert petitions have been filed, are three cases, one from Georgia, uh, one from New York, I believe it's from Zark, it's from New York, isn't it? Well, it's from the Second Circuit anyway. And, um, and a Sixth Circuit case from Michigan uh, involving a, a, a transgender person. So in the two, uh, in the, the cases from the 11th and the Second Circuit, there's a clear circuit split now uh, about the uh, application of Title VII, uh, sex discrimination prohibitions, about the application of Title VII to uh, LGBT people. And of course, the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, prohibits sex discrimination, but there's no mention of sexual orientation. Uh, and the uh, um, opponents of the drive to extend it to sexual orientation say, of course, Congress not only couldn't have contemplated that in, at that time, um, but that uh, there have clearly been efforts, legislative efforts since then to extend it. Uh, there's proposals in Congress, known, the, the act is known as ENDA, and, and those have yet to succeed. And that's for the legislature to do, not for the courts. There have been two courts in recent years, the Seventh and the Second Circuit, that have reconsidered their prior precedents uh, on the question of Title VII protections. And both have extended those protections to LGBT people. Uh, in the Sixth Circuit, uh, the, the court there ruled that a funeral home director who is in the uh, process of transitioning uh, from a man to a woman and who started wearing uh, dresses um, and who was fired um, should be covered by Title VII. Uh, that's on appeal. The Alliance Defending Freedom has brought that petition. There are a range of cases on the topic of um, LGBT rights, religious exemptions um, that are making their way up to the court. These are the first that are here. No guarantee that the court will take any of those three and perhaps um, whether or not there's a new justice on the court uh, in time for their consideration might, might have something to, uh, to say about that. Thank you. And in fact, as the court goes into its long conference next week when it considers all of the uh, petitions that have come in over the summer, to the extent that there's any delay uh, in the Kavanaugh process, that could uh, give pause in granting cert over some cases, lest they be uh, deadlocked uh, four to four. So even if Kavanaugh is eventually seated, if there's delay or uncertainty, that could affect uh, the long conference. All right. Um, well, uh, before I open it up to uh, 
audience questions. I want to ask the panel, I'm not going to ask you what should be done with Kavanaugh. For all I know, there have been developments and since we've been starting the panel that, you know, uh, affects our analysis or, or positions or what have you. But regardless of what happens with this particular nominee, um, uh, clearly every, every single Supreme Court vacancy seems to produce a, a new low or a new, uh, a bigger circus, uh, if you will. Uh, what can be done? What should be done? Uh, is, there, is there nothing about the confirmation process per se? This is just a, uh, an aspect of the larger uh, uh, political uh, debate or direction in which the country is going. Any, any thoughts generally on, on that topic? I mean, I suppose that I think that the only realistic hope, and I don't know how realistic it is, is to try and take the narrow division of the Senate, be it 52-48 or whatever, and make it an advantage rather than part of the problem in the sense that I think that five or six centrist senators could, on you know, both sides of the aisle could get together and say, enough is enough. You need us, and we've had it with this, that both sides are to blame, which is true. Uh, it's getting worse, which is true. Uh, it's affecting the country's confidence in the Senate and the courts and the Supreme Court, which is true. Uh, and it ac that actually seems to me something that is realistic, um, as opposed to other uh, possibilities, only because each side is so committed to the notion that the other is to blame. That if you ask a conservative about this, the first sentence is guaranteed to say the word Bork somewhere in it. And if you ask someone on the left, you're going to hear Garland no matter what. And each regards the other as entirely unprincipled and utterly at fault and views themselves as, as largely blameless. Um, in addition, it's all a question of raw political power. And so I think that anybody on the left who thinks that Democrats wouldn't have tried to pull some of these maneuvers is deluding themselves. Uh, I don't think that, I'm not sure that if the situation had been reversed, that the left would have had kind of the guts and the commitment to do what happened to Merrick Garland. But if they believed they could get away with it, I think that they might well have tried. Um, and so in these circumstances, that's the only thing that I can see working. And otherwise, we are definitely circling the drain. Well, remember, it was McConnell acting by himself without consulting his caucus. So really, would Reid have had the cojones? I don't know. Could be. I don't know. Maybe the caucus wouldn't have held together later, but who knows? Anyone else? Well, that was a fairly open-ended, provocative topic. Come on. This is the Supreme Court panel. Save Mark, us. You're, 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 Save us. Erin thinks she's going to be a candidate for judicial office at some point. Mark, you're not going to be that. I'm sorry. So uh, no thoughts? No, no thoughts that I'm Okay. Want okay. <laughs> you want to share. Uh, all right. Uh, let's open it up for questions. Uh, please wait for the microphone. Wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone and uh, introduce yourself, if you will, and ask, actually ask a question. I'll, I'll advise those of you in the, uh, the, uh, the virtual audience, you can tweet at me, hashtag Cato Scotus. All right. Right in the back row. Uh, Bob Fitzpatrick, uh, I guess my affiliation is a practicing lawyer. Um, a question for Ms. Murphy. On the takings case, um, where does the standing issue come in on that? And then for Mr. Goldstein, on the um, 
dual sovereignty case. Justice Thomas has expressed that he is a historian when it comes to these sorts of issues. How do you see him working through the issues about the history in merry old England on the dual sovereignty issue? So uh, on the takings case, you know, I, I don't think anybody's really teed it up as there being a standing problem in the case, in part because, you know, the, the county, the, the township has basically said, we're, we're not going to take an enforcement action against you right now, but, you know, they haven't kind of given her an actual, like, exemption from the statute in the sense that she couldn't be, be found at some point to be violating it and face... Uh, penalties for violating it. So, you know, so I don't, I, I don't think you, you have the problem that might arise if it were kind of like, well, this exists out there, but it will never apply to you at all, such that you have no, no real injury here. I think everybody is, is proceeding on the understanding that the statute, the ordinance does indeed apply to her and does indeed to continue to apply to her. And it's just the county's, uh, the town's grace in, in deciding not to pursue an action right now that prevents her from facing fines at the moment. Uh, with respect to the dual sovereigns doctrine, you know, this is one of the places where I think Justice Thomas's willingness to take a fresh look at everything and his essentially open disdain for stare decisis in the face of, you know, a conclusion that a decision is wrong has been really useful to the development of the law. Justice Thomas really is willing to take a fresh look at everything. And he has made clear, and I think Justice Ginsburg has as well, that you know this sits on incredibly dubious footing, uh, particularly given the history. Uh, in fact, even the United States, uh, in defending the prosecution, doesn't really defend against the historical argument, but rather makes the argument that, well, the history in England doesn't deal with a situation in which two, the two sovereigns are within the same territory, which is mostly an anomaly of just the structure of government in England more than it is anything relevant. Um, and so I think Justice Thomas is going to be you know, quite clear on the history here, and it will be largely outcome determinative for him in understanding what it was that the framers intended by the protection uh, against double jeopardy. Right here, fourth row. White shirt, blue tie. Thank you. Uh, my name is Bill Hagen. Again, I still have no affiliation. I, I think your solution... You was, haven't acquired one since the last question? No. <laughs> um, not yet. Um, I think they tried your solution with the five moderates uh, several years ago. And I think it was a gang of 14 where they did something similar to that. With, so, I mean, that, I'm, so it's, it's actually worked and it probably would work probably well again. I, the question is on two cases. One was on the, on the double jeopardy. Uh, is the case you're talking about like for the same crime, I, uh, like for, yeah. If, yeah, it's as, the, as opposed it's, to like with the federal government bringing a civil rights, I mean, a denial of civil rights case and, you know, where a criminal case was lost in the state? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the exact boundaries and the requirements for triggering double jeopardy have some vagueness in them, but the essence is you're talking about the same set of facts and the same elements of the offense. So it has to be really pretty tight. These are both, I mean, the, the offense name in the state court, in the state system here is slightly different, and that is it's possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, and the federal government, it's by a felon, but a, a felon is a prohibited person under state law. So th those two things have to match up. 
Okay. And the other question I had, just quickly on the takings, is the cemetery case at, at all akin to, say, the, uh, someone declaring uh, someone's property, uh, like uh, it has an endangered species on it, or, or it's a, like it has a, some kind of a, a pond or something that could be protected? And they can't develop the land like they would want to. Is it similar to that? Yeah, it, 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 there's there's some similarities. It's a little different. Like typically, when you have cases that involve development, they they tend to arise more as regulatory takings cases or kind of conditions cases. Whereas this is really just kind of a a pure physical takings case in the sense of saying you have to open your public property, your private property to the public. You know, I, I think of that partly because I'm litigating this issue in another case, but I think of, of a mandated public access to private property more as a physical taking, which sometimes arises in the context of the, those types of cases, but some cases that involve regulations like that get teed up more as regulatory takings cases. Let's go over there. Yep, wait for the microphone. Yes, uh, Adam Curland from uh, Howard University Law School. This is from Mr. Goldstein. I, I've written a lot about dual sovereignty, so I'm, um, I know about gamble inside and out. I want to go back to Manafort, though, because you never – now, New York has one of those dual sovereignty limitation statutes. Manafort pled to two conspiracy counts in his second trial. And I'm just wondering, given the Blockburger stuff, assuming Trump doesn't issue a, a full and free – what he would, would have done before call it – a full, absolute pardon for everything. If Trump pardons him for the offenses that he has already pled guilty, I'd be interested in your view as to whether or not clever New York State prosecutors would be able to maneuver with Blockburger and come up with state charges that wouldn't be barred by double jeopardy if the court does what you think they're going to do and I, unfortunately, think they're going to do. But. Yeah, so the... Uh, it's quite right that New York has one of these statutes. We talk a lot about New York because New York has been one of the most active states, if not the most, in kind of uh, aggressively uh, attacking the, this administration and its agenda. Uh, and it would be among the most likely to bring charges also because lots of things involving finance happen in New York, including some of the things that Paul Manafort did. There is a pending bill in the New York legislature that has been frozen by Republican opposition uh, that would repeal the New York limitation on dual prosecutions. But I think the premise of the question is let's assume that the dual sovereigns doctrine goes away, and that is that uh, New York couldn't do something that the United States couldn't do. And also, let's assume that New York's law remains in place. If that's, if that's true, dual sovereignty doctrine is overruled, but New York law remains in place, can New York still craft a charge against Manafort in the face of a pardon uh, that would survive? Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about this, including about how it is that the plea agreement is crafted in Manafort. So the Manafort plea is to two conspiracy charges, but that it wraps up inside of it all of the acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, uh, including in the uh, offenses for which uh, the jury hung in the Virginia trial. And so there's an enormous amount of allocution inside these two conspiracy charges. Uh, I think that because it's conspiracy rather than substantive offenses, that there is uh, 
it, the, the odds are that the answer to that question is yes, that there is enough freedom of maneuvering inside uh, the, you know, the existing body of New York state law, plus the fact that they aren't limited to what the United States went after. So I don't think that the, the prospect of overruling the dual sovereigns doctrine in Gamble is enough to make Paul Manafort think, okay, I'm completely free and clear, um, you know, that, that, I, that I will have no problems at all. And that, that also may well have informed his decision to plead guilty and cooperate, just the overwhelming prospect that a, a, a plea agreement in the end wasn't, excuse me, a, a pardon in the end wasn't going to save him. So I do think that in the event of a pardon, uh, you are likely still to hear from the state of New York. It doesn't seem particularly given you know, the, the campaigns in New York for attorney general and the like, it seems extremely unlikely that New York would walk away from the case. All right, right in the middle there, and then we'll go to the back a few rows after that. Uh, Stephen Shore, wonderful presentation. I have two questions on dual sovereignty, which if not, likely to be brought in the next term, almost certainly will be brought in future terms. And those are the um, emphasis largely by corporations not to be subject to local laws for which there is no state law. And the other issue is of controlled substances legal in some states, which are still banned by federal law. I see both of these issues coming before and inevitably coming before the court in a future term, I like people's thoughts on these. So to take them in reverse order, uh, you know, you can smoke marijuana in Colorado. I'm not encouraging you, but just so you know. Uh, but you know, the federal government still takes the position that it's a controlled substance. That's really a question of rather than dual sovereignty and double jeopardy, because one, by definition, one sovereign isn't going to prosecute you, but instead a question of federalism. And thus far, the Supreme Court has leaned in the direction hard, as many people who are familiar with the work of Cato knows, of giving the federal government the power to say, so this is a famous California case in which the, the criminal defendant in the case said, okay, I'm going to grow this marijuana plant inside my house with water that is you know, only from the humidity in my house. I'll use seeds that will never have seen the light of day. I'm going to use solar power so I won't be on the electrical grid. I promise not to sell it. I promise not to refuse to buy another drug as a result of consuming this marijuana. And the Supreme Court said, well, that obviously affects interstate commerce. Um, <laughs> and therefore, you can be prosecuted. And so long as that doctrine holds, uh, then you know that that's just the upshot of it, and that is the the federal rule will be the federal rule. In terms of the the corporations just taking the view, challenging local ordinances as having an insufficient footing in state law uh, to prosecute them, that too I think is uh, you know a separate doctrine. Uh, because it doesn't involve the question of being prosecuted by like a local prosecutor for violating a municipal ordinance and also a state official and also a federal prosecutor. Uh, these things tend to sound more uh, in uh, preemption and the like uh, than in anything related to double jeopardy, I think. All right, there was a uh, Todd right there. 
Thank you. Todd Gaziano from Pacific Legal Foundation. And I'll praise the panel for mostly hitting the blockbuster cases and, and thank especially Aaron. Um, but you missed one, so that's my question. But first, we, my we, we can't spell that one, so. Okay. Weyerhaeuser. Well, our client is. There's like 17 but. vowels in a row. It's, you know. For, first, on, on uh, the Nick case, um, I re you gave us some advice once where you, you mentioned in describing to the folks that it's 30 years. Not a waiver of privilege. <laughs> yes. Everyone right. no. stop listening. This was, this was uh, professional uh, uh, non-client advice. That you, you mentioned that it's been, you know, many times cert was denied on the Williamson County case. And my humble brag is that it's my colleague who brought some of those cases. And we never knew why they weren't granted. I'm not sure why the Nick case that he's bringing and arguing um, got cert, but you you reminded, I think this is a lesson to public interest litigators, you said sometimes they prime the pump. That was the term you used. And that, that it was worth supporting other people's cert petitions as Cato does with us because it primes the pump. And, and in, in this case, we're lucky that it's our case. But the question I now have is why didn't you mention the other blockbuster warehouser Markle case? That's the what formerly Louisiana gopher frog, endangered gopher frog, that they renamed so that they could uh, uh, apply it to our client in Mississippi. Um, don't you think, uh, uh, I know Ilya, if, if no one else mentions it, uh, uh, that's the first case of the first term. Do you think that will make endangered species uh, law? And why did they dodge our Commerce Clause claim? Yes, that, that was a reptilian move, I think. Uh, <laughs> anyone want to talk about Weyerhaeuser? I mean, I think it's a great case. Like, I, it, you know, it's it it um it for for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a great admin law case because it basically, I, I think, provides. I mean, uh, I talked about this in the previous article. Uh, just a, a good vehicle for the court to explore some of the the Chevron issues that everybody has been excited to think the court may explore in more depth with with Justice Gorsuch and and probably if we have a Justice Kavanaugh as well. And it really kind of gets at uh, some of these notions of you know, can we place some constraints in the statutory realm on the administrative state? And so, you know, I, I do think it's um, it's one that folks should keep an eye on for purposes of seeing sort of where the court is going. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to suggest that I think this is going to be the term they like overrule Chevron or anything. But, you know, I, I think we've seen even without the changes of membership on the court, we've seen kind of a concerted effort to cabin deference to administrative agencies and and this case which just kind of tees up basically some some classic chevron step one and step two issues will be one of those good vehicles for the court to kind of continue with that project if it if it remains interested in doing so which uh i have no reason to think it's any less interested now with with uh, with with its current membership than it has been over the past kind of kind of decade as we've seen this strain in so many cases out there can i ask a question Sure. Aaron, do you think this is a good uh, candidate for re-argument? Assuming there's only, there are only eight justices on the first day? I, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if there's only eight, I mean, it's, I guess it strikes me as the kind of case that you could probably figure out a lot of different ways to resolve it, and you could maybe figure out a narrow way to resolve it, and, you know, it, it sort of, I think, I think a lot of things could happen with it. Um, you know, I think that obviously the opinion you might get out of an eight-justice court on this might look very different than the opinion you'd get out of a nine-justice court. So, you know, 
And, and that relates more broadly to other cases that uh, will be heard before, uh, potentially before a ninth justice is seated. Nick and Gundy that we've discussed are uh, both in the, in the, uh, in the first week uh, as well. And this goes to a question that was tweeted to me by my former associate Frank Garrison who tried to jump the queue from out in the back, but I'm incorporating it uh, into my response here. And the, the, uh, the, the, that's the thing. They'll only set something for re-argument if there is a four to four deadlock and they'll try to avoid it uh, otherwise. All right, more questions. I see another former associate. I'm not playing favorite, they just uh, raise their hand often and repeatedly. So. Would you teach him here? Uh, you know, we're, we're nothing if not outspoken, right? <laughs> My name is Devin Watkins from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, we had a case granted before the Supreme Court, uh, Frank v. Gauss, and I wanted to ask you about it. This is about uh, class action attorneys who settled with uh, the company, where the company would give money to charities that they were already giving money to, and in exchange the lawyers would get uh, attorney's fees and everyone would go away without any actual benefit being given to the class members. Or so characterized. Um, <laughs> uh, this is about Cypre. Uh, so this is the kind of settlement where, uh, as part of it, the uh, actual victims uh, who brought the case and who the judgment is being in favor of don't get the benefit, uh, ostensibly because it's too difficult or some other reason. Uh, I think this is really attributable to John Roberts. John Roberts, uh, several years ago, wrote a separate opinion calling attention to this and indicating that he thought that it would deserve the court's, of atten court's attention and had gotten out of hand. Uh, and um, we've been involved in including and in asking the court to take this up. Um, but I think that uh, this is the kind of doctrine where the court might do something quite aggressive and bar Cypre, uh, but at the very least, the grant suggests a real intention to sh put a significant shot across the bow of the lower court. Sometimes the lower courts find solutions to problems that they think are practical and easy and are quick. Uh, and there's a, conspiracy is the wrong word, but the right idea, a kind of collaboration among all the lawyers and the court and everything like that. And the Supreme Court takes a step back and says, you know, wait a second, where is, where is this coming from? Where, what is it grounded in? So I think that people have seen, people who've been paying attention have, have seen the handwriting on the wall uh, since the chief wrote that because he's so respected inside the building. Uh, on there being, you know, limits on on what you could do with Cypre. I don't think anybody could reliably say how far the court will go, but uh, I, and and certainly once the court granted cert, uh, there was no reason in the world for the court to step in unless it intended to say something. It's one of those one direction cert grants, probably. Right here, and after that, two seats over. Very curious row right here. I'm a Dan Berensky, mostly retired lawyer. This question is for Ms. Murphy. Would it have made a difference on the cemetery case if the uh, jurisdiction had passed the law before the owner bought the property? In other words, she bought it and it already was in existence then. So um, as to the ultimate question in the case of whether it's a taking, I mean, that that is an issue that has been debated a lot in takings law. Um, there's 
There's Supreme Court doctrine that talks about you know, the importance of background principles of property law to determining whether something is, is a taking. You know, that there, there's basically an ongoing debate among a lot, of, uh, a lot of cases about does background principles mean kind of did the law exist at the moment you took the property or does it mean something more fundamental and more kind of are those the kind of foundational background principles of property law within the state or the county or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I do think if, if it, in, in the context of kind of resolving the ultimate question of whether something is a taking, you know, this, that would, I, I would expect the town, if that were the, the case, to try to make the argument that that was not a taking. And I would expect Ms. Nick to invoke cases to say, no, that makes no difference at all because this is something that you kind of made up after somebody else had already taken the property without knowing that they had to keep it open to the public to let them visit the cemetery no one knew anything about. David Sobelson, I actually have a delegation question. Some years ago, the state of Michigan passed a law criminalizing suicide assistance, setting up a commission of appointees by various private organizations to discuss the issue and limiting the criminal law to expire when the commission issued its report, thereby giving this unelected private commission the power to decide when this criminal law would be repealed. And so my question to you is, does this, would this on the federal level raise a delegation question? And what is the status of the delegation doctrine under state constitutions? Yeah, so so I think on the federal level, you know, it it it's it there, there's sort of two delegation issues going on in in an instance like that because there's a distinct doctrine about the the kind of distinct problems with delegating authority, not even to really the executive branch, but to uh, non-governmental actors, which is is you know arguably should require you know is is just not okay at all, or at least should have a heightened standard because generally delegating to the executive, you know, a delegation like that is probably at least going to get past the courts very, very wishy-washy, like all you need is an intelligible principle test. Um, but it would raise distinct questions with it being a, a delegation to a non-governmental actor. As for state uh, non-delegation, so, you know, I, I, I can't claim to be familiar with the law of every state, but I, I've certainly, in, in any case that I've had where there was a state law question, um, we have found that most states do have something analogous to a non-delegation doctrine as a matter of state law. There's at least one or two states where I've come across these issues where the state actually seemed to have even perhaps a more robust non-delegation doctrine than the federal doctrine. So, uh, you know, and, and to the extent states don't, uh, those of you who, who, who like to work on these issues should, should go out there and try and get your state courts to uh, start adopting non-delegation doctrines of their own. Back there and then over here. Uh, my name is Jerry Casey, and this is for um, Ms. Murphy. Uh, I had recently been to a Hillsdale conference on scandals and conflicts and political scandals. And they talked about several years ago, the Congress having passed 214 laws, but there were 3,500 regulations that arose from 
the laws and that this was the main reason Congress being so vague in the way they write the law that the regulatory agencies to which it apply make decisions that end up going to the Supreme Court because they are so vague and that their feeling was that Congress had abrogated their responsibility in making true decisions. I was wondering whether you thought that was true or non-true. Yeah, I mean, I think that that gets to the interesting intersection between kind of Weyerhaeuser and the sort of Chevron issues and the non-delegation doctrine and and the Gundy case. And and this is very much, you know, the point that I, I... think that then Judge Gorsuch was getting at when he wrote on these issues on the 10th Circuit uh, in saying that, you know, you you kind of, you you need both a a, a meaningful principle about non-delegation that says the statutes have to be, you know, they they have to, to be clear about what they're delegating and what they aren't and what the executive should do. But at the same time, you know, you should hold Congress accountable just if the statutes aren't clear at all, like what are we doing and have just saying under Chevron, that's fine, that, you know, if Congress didn't, didn't say anything, then I guess it must have meant the agency should figure it out. And, and I think Justice Gorsuch really nicely kind of tied together how you need to kind of come at and, and sort of fix both problems if you want to meaningfully have an effect on this dynamic of most of our law coming not from our legislature, but rather from kind of unelected bureaucrats working the executive branch. So, you know, I think that there's there's a real connection in sort of these admin law strains and the non-delegation doctrine in that respect. Yeah, the one, it's really an interesting question. So as you think about Chevron, if we're going to take a step away from Chevron, what we're going to be saying is that it's the court's job to interpret the law and not the agency. So that means that there's this tsunami wave of cases potentially coming to the courts out of these incredibly vague statutes. And so one way of pushing back against that hydraulic pressure is to insist in the first instance that the statutes not be so vague, that Congress actually take up answering these questions itself rather than in just essentially now, if you have a a less robust Chevron doctrine, having the courts decide those questions. The difficulty is that we are a million miles away from a really robust non-delegation doctrine. I mean, we are, the question on the table now is, shall we have anything that's remotely serious? Not, are we really going to require Congress to write laws uh, and answer difficult questions rather than just leaving them to other branches of government? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think that the this is a real dilemma in the kind of modern judiciary's hostility to leaving these questions to agencies. The upshot is, you're taking them away from unelected bureaucrats and giving them to unelected judges. Uh, we haven't yet articulated a sensible principle for an enforceable principle for putting it, making the people we elect actually, you know, take responsibility for these questions. There's a question right here. Third row. My name is Irv Cohen. I'm a recovering lawyer. Um, My question is very different than all those I've heard here today. Uh, The country is fractured. The government seems to be fractured. Uh, The Roberts Court will probably be known as the Roberts Court for the next 25 to 35 years. To what extent is the Chief Justice working towards avoiding five forward decisions on important cases and trying to massage the court to be more of a healing interest than being a fracturing interest? 
I think Mark should step up and answer, but I just want to thank you on behalf of the Roberts family, which now thinks that he's going to live to be like 100. So. <laughs> well, the Chief Justice talks a lot about the institution, the importance of the institution. I mean, I think uh, we're going to have to wait and see uh, over the next couple of years how important that is to him. Um, there have obviously been a couple of very high-profile cases where he... Um, avoided that five to four outcome where the five appointed by Republicans were on one side and the four. But um, it's a different dynamic. And uh, boy, there's going to be a lot of temptation um, to decide cases the way he might, uh, if he were writing from a blank slate, want to decide them with the votes to do it. So his institutional interest against his, where his jurisprudence might be? I mean, that's, that's, that's the real question over the next um, few years. Uh, whether he's, uh, someone said earlier today at, a, at another panel that it's wrong to think of him as the new swing justice, but more, as a, uh, more of as a governor. Uh, you know, he, he won't let the court go where he doesn't want it to go. You know, I mean, I, I think the other thing that's always important to recall is, I mean, that the chief justice's ability to get consensus for narrow opinions doesn't just depend on the chief justice's desire to have consensus for narrow opinions. It depends on having a significant number of justices who also are happy to resolve a case on narrow grounds and, and reach that kind of consensus. You know, you, you see the justices... Uh, become much more willing to do that when you have a dynamic like, say, an eight-justice court, and uh, not shockingly, you don't see it as much when you have a court where whichever side has the fifth knows they have the fifth. And and so, you know, I think just realistically, I mean, you have to think about it from that broader perspective of it's it's not, you know, I think he... He works very hard to get to narrow consensus when it can be done, but you know he 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 at the end of the day is just one one kind of vote or whatever that phrase is about being one among equals, you know. Uh, so team of nine, there, yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever whatever you you want to use, but but so you know, I I I think that it's genuine. I think that it's something that he will uh, continue to do no matter what the makeup of the court is. But you know, it, it not every case is susceptible to that kind of resolution. You know, I would just separate two different projects uh, because some people accuse the chief of kind of a bait and switch from his hearings. What the chief mostly spoke about, I think, at his confirmation hearings was at that time we had a lot of decisions that had, you couldn't even find a five justice majority in because there would be someone who didn't agree with part two, C, I, B, double I, footnote three, the third sentence. And, uh, you know, we, and it became very difficult for the parties to the people who are trying to follow the law, understand what the court was saying, you know, here is the decision. And he has been very successful in that project. The separate project is getting away from five to four decisions. And I don't think that he regards that as much as an imperative. He can't, there's only so much you can do, as Aaron says. What, the, what he has done a lot is pacing. And that is Justice Scalia was of the view that you needed to be aggressive and that there was a limited amount of time, you needed to get to the end result. If you were going to reach a doctrinal you know, uh, place, you needed to go ahead and issue a decision like that. And the chief has 
wanted to move in more measured steps. And so it has sometimes taken the chief three different decisions to get to some significant change in the law. Uh, but I don't think he really, I, I wouldn't say that there are significant questions on which the chief justice has said, I think the outcome should be X, but because I can't get seven votes for it, I'm not going to go to X. Uh, and I think that for the reasons Mark suggests, the pressure on this is going to be even greater because the conservative, particularly on the assumption that Brett Kavanaugh or some other uh, nominee of President Trump is put on the court for providing a fifth conservative vote who is more conservative than Justice Kennedy, they're going to get presented with a lot more potential cases that can move the law that organizations were afraid what Justice Kennedy would do with them. And there are going to be four conservative votes on the Supreme Court to grant those cases, whereas there might not be have been before because they were concerned about what Justice Kennedy would do with them. So one would expect for multiple reasons the number and significance of five, four cases uh, will you know grow very dramatically over the course of the next few years. And the, uh, as a result, if uh, it's not... You know, depending on how that's pitched publicly, the courts, the public perception of the court, given that you have people referring to five Republican justices and four Democratic justices, uh, may suffer. And we'll have to let that be the last word, right, ending right on time. Let's thank the panel. Thank you.